Well, we're starting a new series today. We're titling it Fulfilling Our Ministry, Decisions for a New Decade. And uh, today we're, uh, we're in, this is the first message in the series, decision number one. In Paul's uh, closing words to his young friend, his protege, Timothy, in the letter that we now know as Second uh, Timothy, Paul is speaking to him in very plain and direct words. And as we saw in Paul's closing words to the church in Rome a couple of weeks ago, and so here, parting words are, are often very, very purposeful and therefore very powerful words. It's startling, though perhaps it should not be, to hear in those final words of Paul's prediction of a coming spiritual climate, very much like the one that we are observing in the United States here in the early 21st century. Listen to his description. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And as you hear that, does that ring any bells for you as you look around our our present culture? Um, You may be aware that church attendance overall is in significant decline in the United States. Uh, Church closures are increasing. especially among the mainline denominations. Non-Christian cults are again on the rise. Hostility toward evangelical Christians and Jews is also rising again. Washington State in 2020 is now ranked the seventh least religious state in the Union. Um, We used to be the second. I guess there's something to be said for that, but only because uh, a whole bunch of little tiny New England states have uh, eclipsed us. The largest religious demographic in our state are those who claim no religious faith whatsoever. The Pew Research Center predicts that within the next four to six years, that group will also be the largest demographic group in the United States. Paul followed up his warning to Timothy with this charge. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy, keep your head on straight. Keep your mind clear. Things may get much harder, Timothy, but don't give up. Endure suffering because it inevitably will come. Don't lose sight of the mission, Timothy. Don't lose your confidence in the word of God. Don't Lose your confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fulfill your calling, Timothy. See it through to its completion. Fulfill your ministry. And that last phrase, of course, fulfill your ministry, provides the theme for the messages over these next five to six weeks. We're about to turn the page and begin a new chapter in the story God is writing for LifePoint Church. And what I'd like to do in these messages is as your pastor to engage in some sober-minded thinking about what fulfilling our shared ministry will require of us, whatever may come in this new chapter in the coming days. What will it look like in the coming decade for us to fulfill our ministry of helping people to find and follow Jesus? In a new neighborhood, what, what will it look like to see our vision of multiplying Christ followers, leaders, small groups, and churches come to fruition? 
what decisions will we need to make? By the way, there's, there's some good news in there among all those depressing research results. The silver lining is that there is a group of churches, a kind of church in the United States that is actually not in decline, but increasing in number and multiplying. And, and the good news is that those churches are churches like ours, churches that hold to the inspiration and the authority of Scripture, the power of the gospel, who are helping people to find and follow Jesus, to grow as his disciples, who are being aggressive about that, being intentional about that. So that's the good news. So what's the first decision that we need to make? Here's what I think it is. Work at our worship. To work at our worship. You may be surprised that I said that the first decision LifePoint Church needs to make is to work at our worship. But before I tell you what I mean, let me tell you what I don't mean. I don't mean that the pastoral staff needs to work at our worship. And I don't mean the worship band needs to work at our worship. What I mean is that each of us and all of us need to work at our worship. Some of you may recoil at the suggestion that you should have to work at worship at all. Isn't it just a natural thing? Just let it flow, baby, right? And after all, we we pay people to design worship gatherings, to, to present engaging messages, to deliver a nice, even sometimes entertaining worship experience, don't we? I don't know who first said it, but I remember hearing this statement several years ago, and I've never forgotten it. Our generation will be remembered as the first to worship our work, to work at our play, and to play at our worship. Worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Why should we think of worship as something that requires work. Let me direct your attention to 2 Samuel 24. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there or turn your Bible on and and navigate to that spot, 2 Samuel 24. It's recorded that, that God sent a sickness against Israel for a sin that had been committed by King David. And as a result of this sickness, over 70,000 Israelites had died. The prophet Gad approached David and told him to raise an altar to the Lord on the site of a threshing floor owned by a man named Arana. Or at least that's the way I think it's pronounced. And he's not here to correct me. So his name is Arana. David paid Arana a visit and informed him that he would buy his threshing floor to build an altar to offer a sacrifice to the Lord in hopes that God would remove his hand of judgment and bring an end to the plague. And hearing his offer, in return, Arana replied, look, I just, you're the king. You bowed down to him. You're the king. It's yours. I'll I'll, I'll just give it to you. In fact, not only will I give you the threshing floor, but I'll give you oxen for sacrifice and another set of yoked oxen to haul the wood up the hill. It's all yours. May the Lord accept you, he said. May the Lord accept your sacrifice. What I want you to hear is David's reply because it's noteworthy. 
And I think every believer ought to memorize this verse. Second Samuel 24, 24. Here's what he said. No, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. And I think you and I need to learn what David's heart expressed in that moment. This is the Lord God we're talking about. This is the worship of the God of the universe, our creator, our maker, our savior, our redeemer, our judge. I will not offer to the Lord my God of that which cost me nothing. And I believe that we as a church need to learn to count the cost of worshiping the God who is supremely worthy of all that we are and all that we have. We need not to be a church that plays at our worship. As we read the scriptures, we learn that worship is the intended vocation of all creation. Vocation means our calling. It's the calling of creation to worship our maker. The psalmists were in agreement on this point. And in the Psalms and the prophets, we find numerous expressions such as these. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. And in Psalm 148, I'll be the greatest of all. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the highest. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. That about sums it up, right? All of creation joins in worshiping the Lord. I'm looking forward to heaven because I kind of think C.S. Lewis's imagination was heavenly informed. And I can hardly wait to see a river clap its hands. You know? Or or mountains break forth into singing. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. I hope it's not just in Narnia. I hope it's in heaven. See, most importantly, from among us who are equally his creation and the pinnacle of his creation... If we read Genesis 1 correctly, God longs for real worshipers 
God longs for real worshipers. One day Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Jerusalem through the region of Samaria to the north on his way home uh, to Galilee. And Jesus had sent the disciples into town to pick up some cheeseburgers. He was, he was tired. Uh, he decided that as they went to get the, you know, hit kosher McDonald's, um, that, that he would hang out by a well. And it was a historical well. It was, the Bible identifies it as Jacob's well. A Samaritan woman came to that well that day to draw water. And Jesus, as was his uh, usual, engaged her in an epic conversation. You find it in John chapter 4. In the middle of the, congrega- or in the, middle of the conversation, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, wouldn't you kind of say that if you were in a conversation with Jesus? I perceive that you are something unusual. You are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, as Mount Gerizim, our, our father Samaritan, the Samaritan Jews. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, when that guy arrives, he's, he's going to you know, clear this up, and he's going to correct you too, sir. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What a moment that must have been. And notice verse 23, because this is what I want you to see. Jesus said to her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. See, she was talking about location. He was talking about life. She was talking about religion. And he was talking about reality. God the Father is still seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And in fact, God's first agenda in your personal life is to make you a great worshiper. Did you ever think that when God pursued you and you first became aware that God was pursuing you in the person of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit, that his goal was to make you a worshiper? What I want to suggest to you is that that's square one in the life of Christian discipleship, becoming a worshiper. He wants you to worship him not in a particular location, but from the innermost places of your heart, to worship him with your mind, according to the truth of who he really is and all that he has done. The Bible tells us that worship is the intended lifestyle of every Christ follower. 
We really shouldn't. We really can't think of worship as a compartmentalized part of our Christian life that we pull out of the generic file drawer of spiritual disciplines. Human beings, you and I, are hardwired for worship. We are at the core of our being worshipers. Worship is the default impulse of the human heart. I'm dating myself here, but Bob Dylan captured this truth when he sang that you're going to have to serve somebody. Our hearts are always seeking someone or something to worship. That explains our obsession with movie stars and athletes and you name it. We are always seeking something to worship, something that will consume us. And the central theme is of the Christian life is living for the glory of God. Romans 12.1, we saw this just recently. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The holiness and the acceptability come from the purifying and sanctifying work of the blood of Christ and the, and the work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. But you remember that after Paul had laid out that incredible doctrinal statement that talked about a a righteousness that is by faith that comes only from God. Completing that amazing presentation, he then turns the corner. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of all that he has done, That's what he's saying there. The mercies of God, that phrase covers the previous 11 chapters. By the mercies of God, because he's been merciful to you, because he's been gracious to you, the logical thing now for you to do is to present all that you are. That's what's what's there in that word bodies, present your bodies. It means present the whole of your being to God, which is your logical spiritual worship. And what that means in part is that worship is to be a moment-by-moment daily expression of our hearts, our minds, and our lips. What we think, what we value, what we speak. In fact, as I was preparing this message, I ran across Hebrews 13.15, where the writer of Hebrews says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. See, what I want you to understand here is that the word continually means pretty much, if you look it up in the Greek, means continually. (laughs) Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's supposed to be our default setting. Worship. And because that is true, then what will also be true is that corporate worship becomes a gathering of active worshipers. In other words, there won't be this great big difference between your daily life and what happens here on Sundays. We're commanded to gather, 
we're expected to gather. We, we want to gather. And when we do, it's just an extension of our daily lives. That's the picture. When we come together to worship, we're doing together what we've been doing individually 24-7 through each day since we last gathered. And in fact, the most common explanation for anyone's dissatisfaction with their experience in worship is, is that they were not actually focused on worshiping God, but on satisfying themselves. Trying to check some box that, that represented their preferences. If, if you're a true worshiper, all of the peripherals of style and music and culture fall away in the presence of God. With that in mind, let me, let me just mess with our worship leaders for a few minutes. The church longs for real worship leaders. God longs for real worshipers. The church longs for real worship leaders. And I love our worship leaders, don't you? I mean, I love our worship band. Uh, I should say, I thought I should say bands because it's kind of a rotating cast of characters. Uh, each one participates so well in each Sunday morning, but but I want to give you who lead worship or who aspire to lead worship a word of challenge to work at your worship as well. Because here's what I believe. The worship leaders themselves must first be worshipers. Whether you sing or you play an instrument or you do both, in order to lead God's people into worship, you need to have come with a a heart of worship from a week of personal worship as well. You, you cannot lead people in worship places where you've never been. You just can't do it. In the last psalm of them all, Psalm 150, we read this call to worship. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a lot of instruments. No cowbell. Need more cowbell. Notice the call to worship God with musical instruments. Those of you who are instrumentalists, do, do you worship God during the week with your instrument? If you do, then your goal will be that God is glorified by the way you play. Do you work at increasing your skill with your instrument? Psalm 33.3 says, Sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings. Play skillfully. And then it adds with shouts of joy. Some of you don't like that, but it adds shouts of joy. Those of you who sing, are you invested in enhancing your vocal skills in order to glorify God? You work at your voice. It's an instrument too. Do you invest adequate time in, in preparation for Sunday so that when Sunday rolls around, you sing and you play to the Lord and for the Lord with excellence? Secondly, when we gather to worship, the band and the leaders have got to worship. It needs to be worship, not a performance, 
Not just a perfunctory playing of music, but worship. And if you're not worshiping, you, you shouldn't occupy this space. As leaders, we're called upon to model behaviors we want others to follow. John Maxwell is famous for his statement, he who, he who thinketh he leadeth, when no one followeth, only taketh a walk. See, worship leaders are, in fact, lead worshipers. That's the concept. Congregations learn to worship by watching their leaders worship. And so the same applies to me as a pastor, the other pastors, all of us who are in leadership. The way you conduct yourself on Sunday morning, regardless if you're up here or back there or in between, you're leading in worship. You're demonstrating what that should look like. And when we're led in authentic worship by authentic worshipers, here's what happens. We experience the presence of God, and we're transformed in his presence. There's a transformational dimension to genuine worship. Well, there are three words that I want to leave with you that should describe our attitudes as we gather to worship. There are probably lots more. I'm just going to give you three that I think are really important for us. One is expectancy. Expectancy. Authentic worship anticipates an encounter with God and a next word from God. So let me ask you this morning. When you came to worship this morning, when you come on Sundays, do you anticipate an encounter with God? I mean, I, I imagine this conversation between parents and children, this conversation actually never happens, but... I imagine this. Honey, you know who's going to be in church today? No, who, Mom? God. God's going to be there. Okay. Really? Yes. See, let me ask, would you be more likely to make sure that you were here, seated in the front row, if you knew that, oh, let's say... Russell Wilson was here. See, here's what I think, and I'm, I'm guilty too. If we, if we get more excited about a sporting event, or we get more excited about a concert, or meeting someone famous or handsome or beautiful than we do about the prospect of encountering our maker and the redeemer of our souls in the assembly of God's people, there's probably a deeper heart problem that we need to explore. And I see people in our church making trade-offs like that all the time. Do you come with the anticipation that God has a word to speak to you personally, the God of the God of all creation has a word to speak to you personally? Let me get even more pushy and nosy. Parents, do you have that conversation? Do you come with the anticipation that your children aren't just going to be cared for so you can sit in here. But in fact, they too have the opportunity to encounter the living God and to, to hear a personal word from them for the, from him for their own lives. See, here, here's what I believe would be true if we anticipated all of that. We couldn't wait to get here.
Our expectation is church. God says your expectation is meet with me. We would be praying for the presence of God to be palpable in this place. We, we would arrive, surprise, surprise, we would arrive early. Can you imagine that? Or at least on time. We, we would be on the edge of our seats. And that would mean that we'd get our children here early and checked into their classrooms. Early. We would come prepared to receive what God has to say to us and to respond accordingly. And that excitement would rub off on our guests who already think that they should be on time. They haven't figured out that that's not the norm. We ought to come with the expectation that God is going to speak and he's going to act. See, what if God spoke in the first three minutes of the service and you totally missed it? Sorry. God spoke it. You missed it. Sorry. You want me to, want me to stop? Here's the second word. Reverence. Reverence. What's reverence? A dictionary search turned this up. Reverence is a feeling of deep respect tinged with awe. I like that. Pretty good. Reverence someone is to show them intense respect. So if you find that you don't have a deep sense of reverence for God, then here's what's true of you. Your God is way too itsy-bitsy small. And you need to have a personal encounter with the living God and, and learn much more about him from his word, the Bible. Reverence precedes worship because authentic worship focuses on the God of revelation and not on the God of our imagination. Authentic worship focuses on the big G God of revelation, not the little g God of our imagination. And here's something that I know is true from my own experience. It's possible to feel close to God without ever really focusing on who he is. Now imagine, guys, most of you, a lot of you are married here, so, but just... Just stay with me here. So if you're on a date, back when you were single, okay, you can remember that. You're on a date, and your name is Bob. And your date, whom you're enamored with, says, I am so thankful to be here with you, Steve. You know, I always thought that Steve was a great name. Or imagine. <laughs> yes, it is. Or imagine that you're a, you're a plumber and your date says, I, I'm so excited to be here because I've just always wanted to marry a doctor. See, excitement, but she didn't know who she's with. It's possible to, to work up feelings of being close to God without really knowing him, without really focusing on who he is. 
And it's possible to work ourselves into an emotional euphoria without distinguishing between God generic and God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And in this age of spiritual pluralism, in this age of cafeteria-style self-made religion, that difference is pivotal. And some people actually prefer the euphoria to the reality. And that's what they're hoping for when they come to a worship gathering, and then they're disappointed when the bus doesn't deliver them to the state of euphoria. And those feelings are great. I mean, I I get emotional in worship. I, I, I can get caught up in a song. Sometimes Evan's trying to tell me, Jim, it's time for you to come up here, and I'm just, you know, my eyes are closed, I'm gone. I I love those moments. I mean, I don't love being up here late. Usually I come up early and and then I'm really embarrassed. But the feelings are great. But who are we worshiping? What are we expecting? We, We should never attempt to lead people into the throne room of a generic God. And if we do, we might very well be leading them into idolatry. Instead, our goal always has to be to lead them into the presence of the one true and living God who has been revealed, who has been made accessible to us in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And when we do, when we do, they will have the opportunity to experience his power and be transformed by his grace. And the primary way that, that we can make sure that we're leading people into the presence of the big G God is to combine our expressions of worship with examination of his word, the Bible. And when the true and living God speaks, he speaks from his word. He will never speak to you a word that is not consistent with the written word. And we should always measure what we think we hear God speaking against the word of God, against, his, against the scriptures. So we'll work to make sure that the words we speak, the songs we sing, the teaching that we bring is in total alignment with the inspired and authoritative word of God. Well, what does reverence and worship look like? I don't know. See, depending on the, the particular culture of the worshipers, what reverence looks like may vary considerably. It varies considerably for people in different denominations. If you're in Africa, reverence might be expressed through jumping and dancing and chanting and beating drums. It's very possible. In another setting, it may be very quiet and still. In one place, it's with a loud electric guitar. In another place, it's with an organ. What does reverence look like? It looks like Feelings of deep respect tinged with awe, wherever you are. See, and if you're a real believer in Christ, if you're a true worshiper, you can worship, you can worship anywhere with any other believers. Whatever reverence means to each of us, that's what we should bring to an encounter with God. The prophet Isaiah had a profound encounter with God that I think gives us a glimpse of the anatomy of reverence. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And notice with me that Isaiah didn't report that he had experienced a vision, even a heavenly one. He says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. When we experience a real encounter with the living God, we know that his presence is real, not man-made. It's authentic and not imaginary. To see the Lord is to perceive his total otherness, which is what that word means when we talk about the holiness of God, that he is totally other than we. We experience, we perceive his supreme authority and power. We perceive his total unworthiness to receive our worship. Buddy Owens remarked that the prophet's observation that the train of God's robe filled the temple is an indication that, that though we're told elsewhere, elsewhere that his glory filled the temple, here in Isaiah's vision, God is seated above the temple. He's not a domesticated God. He's not God in a box. He doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. To see the Lord is also to see ourselves as we really are. And in that lies, in that difference, in that distinction lies reverence. To be broken in his presence. Because God's holiness uncovers us. God's holiness exposes us in our fallenness and in our sin. In God's presence, Isaiah was confronted with his own sin, and he cried, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, I know that I never have to yell when I preach. Sometimes yell at home. But I don't yell when I preach. Why? Because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't convict you of anything. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And what Isaiah is telling us here is that when we see God, when we see him and we perceive something of his holiness, his complete otherness, his majesty, his power, then we recognize our sin. Then we recognize our brokenness. Then we recognize our unworthiness. But notice what happens here. Isaiah's humiliation and his confession set the stage for God's transformation. Isaiah's humiliation, his confession, set the stage for God's transformation. Verses 6 and 7 paint such a beautiful picture. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Being humbled and broken in the presence of the holy God. Coming face to face with the predicament of our sin in his presence. Confessing that sin. And then receiving forgiveness from him. And not just forgiveness, but the, but the word that's used here is atonement. Which means that God's wrath is turned away from us. Our sins are paid for, finally and in full. And our relationship with him is reconciled. And don't miss... I mean, all of that prefigures the cross, doesn't it? It all prefigures the cross. And don't miss what happens next. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Send me. Real worship always works transformation in us and it equips us to serve the Lord. See, if your worship of God doesn't result in practical submission to the will of God, an anxiousness to serve Him, willing engagement in the mission of God, then here's what has not yet happened. We have not yet encountered the the living God. You haven't worshipped. Final word is relevance. Relevance. And by relevance, I mean that authentic worship communicates biblical truth in a culturally comprehensible form. It's the most basic axiom of missional thinking. Communicating biblical truth in a culturally comprehensible form. See, there, there's an immediate missional component to corporate worship itself. Now think about it, our, our worship service is the front door to our church. You might think of other you know, programs of the church as kind of side doors. But the front door is our worship service because that's the door through which most people who are new to the life of our church enter the life of our church. And some people object to the idea that we should be even thinking about the needs of guests in our gatherings who may not know Jesus yet. They will say that when the church gathers, our only concern should be for believers, that the worship, the worship service is for believers and believers only. And I, I just say that's unbiblical baloney. I would say it was unbiblical bull something else, but it's unbiblical baloney. Here's an example. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul talked about the presence of outsiders or unbelievers in the corporate worship of the church. It was assumed that they would be there. And he observed that if the church is engaged in activities or avenues of worship that are unintelligible to them, that don't make sense to them, their only conclusion will be that we Christians are out of our minds, that we've departed our senses, that we're just religious maniacs. And that's actually the word he uses there. They'll think you're maniacs. Worship 
is to be understood by those in need of transformation. A question we should always be asking ourselves is this. Could a person who is far from Christ come into our worship services, see people like themselves worshiping God in a way that makes sense, and hear a comprehensible message of the gospel? See, the the message of the gospel must always be presented in a comprehensible manner, as, as comprehensible as we can muster. There, there are a lot of things I don't even understand in the Bible, but, but the basics are clear. Remember the story in Acts of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? And Jesus had risen from the dead, and before he ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, you know, don't, don't take any vacations, don't go to Haiti, don't go to Bermuda, Tahiti, don't, don't, don't do any of that. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And they're going, oh, I don't know what that means, but okay. And 50 days after Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified, 50 days after Passover is the Jewish feast of Pentecost. In fact, the word Pentecost just means 50. Pentecost is always 50 days after Passover every year. And it was that day when Jesus fulfilled his promise to clothe them with power by pouring out on them the Holy Spirit. And one of the immediate effects was that they began speaking in languages that were not their own, languages that they had not learned, languages that they did not otherwise speak. They were not unearthly languages. They were not heavenly languages, but they were languages actually spoken by Jews from a variety of other countries who were there in Jerusalem for the feast. And notice what it says in the beginning of verse 7. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. Those people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. By the way, to say they're from Galilee is to say they're a bunch of country hicks. That's, That's actually what that means. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. What was God doing? God was making their worship, God was making their praise intelligible to Jews from other nations that spoke other languages. And by the Holy Spirit, God intended through the apostles and through the church to make the gospel intelligible to the world. You may be familiar with the idea of someone having a heart language. And when when people use that expression, they're speaking to a, a person's dominant language, the language that he or she learned from childhood in their parents' home, from earliest infancy. and So for our worship to be intelligible, for our worship to be relevant, comprehensible, to those among us who do not yet know the Lord Jesus, we need to work at learning and speaking their heart language, to speak deep biblical truth in language they can understand so that they can believe in Jesus. And it's not just a linguistic thing. It's a cultural thing, cultural relevance. And that, again, has, has implications for the words we speak, the kinds of words we choose to use, the manner in which we teach. It also has to do with the style of our music. It has to do with the clothing that we wear, the ways that we decorate our church facility, the ways that we welcome people into our church, and, and so much more. 
And there's so much more that I could say this morning, but I'm out of time, and I'm going to end it here. Life point. Life point. We're about to cross the river. We're about to open a new chapter. And I really believe that if we're going to fulfill our ministry in the coming decade, then we need to decide to work at our worship. And I'm asking you to work at your worship. To anticipate an encounter with God and a word from God and to respond accordingly. God is seeking worshipers. He's still seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's give ourselves to that with increasing intelligence and increasing intensity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that you speak into our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in our church, what you're about to do, some of which we can anticipate and some that we could never even begin to imagine. But Lord, we want to be available and we want to be attentive. Uh, We want to be sitting on the edge of our seats, present for every moment, and the things that you have to do and to speak in us and through us. So let us apply ourselves to all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.